Trio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigahauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In the last few weeks, a familiar subject matter has dominated headlines again. Is structural racism an issue in the UK, Norway, France, and many other countries? Is this term, which is often situated in an American context, relevant to Europe and other parts of the world? In the UK, the latest discussion was sparked by a report from the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. The so-called Sewell Report, nicknamed after Commission Chair Tony Sewell, states, and I quote, We no longer see a Britain where the system is deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. The impediments and disparities do exist, they are varied, and ironically very few of them are directly to do with racism. Too often, racism is the catch-all explanation, and can be simply implicitly accepted rather than explicitly examined. In today's episode, Marta B. von Erdahl goes beyond the debate on whether or not structural racism is a useful term, and gets to the heart of the matter. No matter what words we use, she argues, people are experiencing discrimination, big and small, in their everyday lives. And this is often quite simply linked to other people's assumptions, which they base on what a person looks like. How can these incidents be resolved and reckoned with? Marta is a research director at PRIO, a research professor in migration studies, and co-director of the PRIO Migration Center. She's a human geographer, and her work focuses on topics such as migrant transnationalism, migration, and development, as well as migration-related diversity and nationhood. In her research in Norway, Marta has found what she calls arenas for understanding. We discussed what those arenas might look like, as well as how to place this conversation in an international context. Welcome back to the podcast, Marta. I'm really glad to have you on again. Um, So lately in Norway, there's been a lot of debate about racism. And I mean, this is certainly not unique to Norway. Um, This has been around the world and and for many reasons. Um, But particularly the term structural racism has has been used. And you've written a couple of op-eds about this. In academia, the debate has been very heated, and we're not going to rehash that whole debate today. That's not why we're here. (laughs) But let's just set the stage a little bit so that people can understand what we're talking about. So can you just briefly summarize the viewpoints and also explain why it's been so heated? Thanks, Inigo. It's really nice to be back. And thanks for a really big question. So I'll try to deliver on the brief part at least. Um, So you're right, the debates on structural racism, or what has also been referred to as institutional or systemic racism, uh, have been surprisingly sort of heated and and polarized also in academic circles. And I think to me as a migration researcher, it's been interesting to see how this in a way reflects the polarization around immigration issues more more broadly. So so why? And I think there's a couple of different points we could keep in mind here. the first one is that I think we mix a little bit what we speak about. So there's a conversation about structural racism or systemic or institutional racism, which in a way is quite particular, but very often it's sort of taken into the broad context of experiences of racism. And then those kind of get a bit mixed up. Uh, and so it's not clear whether people are speaking about individual people's very real everyday experiences of racism or what they experience as discrimination based on how they look. So racism. Um 
or whether it's about something which is sort of endemic in systems. Uh, and then I think sort of one um, one way of trying to sort of disentangle what's been going on, obviously, is being this very polarized and heated debate about whether structural racism exists or not, which has been a conversation in Norway. Right now, it's a conversation also in, in the UK in terms of whether systemic racism exists or not. Uh, I think, as with most things like this, many people would agree that, you know, it's a question of degree and not of kind of yes or no. Uh, but I think it's been really sort of heated because it's been intertwined also with broader debates about how we should understand what racism is and how issues of racism are related to questions of white privilege and of decolonization and of kind of bigger debates about other things in academia as well. And I think there's many, many different views on how they are entangled or not, whether they should be or not. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why that they, the debate on structural racism in particular has become so polarized is that even some academics have taken the view that it doesn't exist or that it does exist and basically white people are to blame full stop. And those two views are kind of too strawman-like really to work in the real world. So I think that's kind of pretty much why why I would at least say it's become so polarized. Thank you. That was very concise <laughs> for a very complicated conversation. Um, so in your op-eds on this topic, you're kind of taking... A little bit of a new tact. You're not as interested um, in debating, continuing this debate that that you just summarized. You're more interested about action, and of course, you also lean on your own research that we're going to go into a little bit later. And it's always nice to have uh, actual results that that we can <laughs> refer to. So, um, in particular, you're you're sort of addressing how we talk to each other, and and who's talking to each other as well. Can you explain a little bit about why you think that's so important? Yeah, so I think, uh, of course, like you say, it's very intertwined with my own my own research on these issues, which we'll come back to. But I think there's something about which voices are being heard or not, uh, in which ways in debates about experiences of racism and also about systemic racism in, in different societies and also in the Norwegian context. And so I think it, it matters who is speaking uh, and it matters how we listen to each other's so in terms of the who is speaking part, of course, it's, it's a pretty obvious point, right? So uh, if the people who are participating in the conversations, whether these are academics or maybe people in the broader public debate who have no personal experience of racism themselves, it's a pretty obvious point that that's going to give you a different starting point for entering that conversation than if you are someone who has on a daily or weekly basis yourself or perhaps through family members uh, experienced everyday racism in the society that you're actually living in and also perhaps in other societies that you have been living in around around the world. Uh, and of course, you shouldn't sort of dismiss people's views and especially not their research findings in, in terms of what their personal experiences are. There's more to that than, than that, of course. Uh, but at the same time, there is a sort of skewedness to the fact that the voices who have been the most vocal about the fact that structural racism is not a useful concept, it, it doesn't even exist because we have legislation in the Norwegian context and against discrimination, uh, which works, and we do. We're, we're a society where actually the system, to a large extent, does work, and you can go to the courts, and there are kind of rules and laws, and and it's not kind of a, a complete sort of anarchy at all. This is all true, uh, but at the same time, these experiences are also very true. And so I think the balance of the people who participate in these conversations, if it's sort of tended to skew too much to those who don't have any personal experiences, it's a problem because you maybe lose legitimacy with those who have had those experiences. Uh, and also maybe it does actually affect how you see things and to what extent you see them as, as, as a problem or not. 
And I think this also becomes a sort of methodological issue in terms of research, right? And this is also a big conversation in terms of how do you actually research whether racism uh, is a big problem or a small problem or exists or doesn't exist or in which kinds of the facets. Uh, and that's kind of a whole question of methodology, of, of sort of interdisciplinary or disciplinary approaches, and of what you understand as knowledge and as facts as well. So I don't think we should go into that too far, but I think that's part of the conversation also in terms of, of which voices are heard as well. It's not just about your own personal background, but it's also about the different methods and approaches that are being used in research. And I'll just add there that personally, I think there's a value to all the different voices in terms of research methods and approaches in this conversation. I think it's very dangerous if we try to dismiss any of the kind of academic voices that are out there. Uh, It's also useful with people who question the fact of whether systemic racism exists or not, because it means that those of us who perhaps have a hunch that despite the laws and rules that are in place, uh, it still might be there, we have to do a better job of actually researching it and documenting whether or not it actually exists and in what what ways it manifests and how it's possible to maybe reduce it or eliminate it in the future. So I think all the voices are really valuable, but it's maybe useful just taking a step back and and reflecting on who is participating in the conversation. And as we know from all of these types of debates, uh, there is a question of who is allowed to enter those conversations, who has a platform to speak in these conversations. And we know that our societies aren't entirely equal, right? There's not an equal space for everyone. So that could be down to gender, to socioeconomic status, to networks, to race as well. Uh, so I think, you know, for those reasons, it is really important to reflect on who is actually participating in, in these conversations and what are they bringing to the table. And then getting to the second part in terms of, you know, how do we actually speak to each other and how are we listening? I think this is really important because uh, I find that, you know, this this conversations about racism and discrimination and experiences of racism are not new at all, not even in the Norwegian context, they're not new. Uh, And still, it seems like despite people saying very similar things over a long period of time, maybe they're not being heard. So in terms of the fact that people have been saying that they have been experiencing things which, whether or not you want to label them as racism as such, feel like racism. If they're not being heard, why is that? Is it because of the words we're using? Or is it because people are not kind of listening on that channel? Is it because it's too uncomfortable to hear that? I think that enters into the sort of field of uh, what is often referred to as racism without racists. And this is a phenomenon that has been discussed a lot in in research. And and I think it's it's an interesting phenomenon because racism does exist, even if there aren't racists, maybe in the sort of um, sense that we, many of us, I think, imagine uh, perhaps what a racist should look like, right? So maybe you have particular ideas about what political views they would have, maybe even about gender, maybe, you know, this kind of particular stereotypes we have about that. And, and, you know, thankfully, very few people are, you know, really into a belief that there is a hierarchy of value of human dignity. There are some, yes, but that is the extreme. And so I think kind of the sort of gut reaction in a way of the fact that, you know, racism doesn't exist in our society, it has to be understood not from the perspective that, you know, you're white, you have privilege, you just don't get it. Yes, maybe that is a part of it. And I'm white. So yes, maybe, maybe I don't get it. Right. And I I hear that. And I, I know that I need to reflect on that. But at the same time, I'm also thinking it's worth listening to those reactions which actually, which actually say, you know, I, I didn't mean anything racist by asking you where you really come from. I'm really interested in your story. You know, I, as a child, lived somewhere else in the world, and I was wondering whether you maybe came from that part of the world. So it was a genuine curiosity question and not something which I wanted to make you feel like you don't belong. But then I would also need to, in that context, understand that maybe me asking that question, if I don't follow up with this explanation, perhaps, does lead people to feel like they don't belong, especially if this happens on a weekly basis throughout your life. 
So I think the sort of how do we speak to each other thing is less about, you know, defining structural racism in a particular way and kind of banging on with those definitions. I think in the everyday life sense and in the kind of sense of creating societies where people can belong in equal terms, maybe those kind of strict definitions that we need for research perhaps are less crucial, but how we choose to listen to each other uh, actually is much more important. And I do think that that is a shared responsibility. Uh, and that's kind of a, a, a difficult thing to ask of people who feel that they're being discriminated against. And I think in effect, to be able to move ahead and do anything to improve the situation, uh, it is still necessary that we as human beings try to listen to each other more carefully both ways. Uh, and then it does mean that even those people who are actually feeling discriminated against and who are experiencing everyday racism and are at the end of that, sometimes in very sort of, you know, everyday mundane, even not very malign forms, have to find in themselves the energy and the will to again and again say, you know, okay, I, I understand you maybe didn't mean it like that, or okay, let's, let's try again, or, you know, I'm happy to tell you my story, I wonder why you ask, and then to actually openly try and listen to that other person as well. And that takes a lot of patience and energy, and it becomes a sort of dilemma, I think, because it means that part of the burden of, of reworking how we relate to these things in our societies to make things better is lying on the people who are actually um, bearing the cost of it to start with. And that's not really the right way to go about it. But, but honestly, personally, I don't really see any other way to, to go about this. So certainly most of the work should be on, on sort of the people who are not uh, bearing the brunt of everyday racism. But I don't really see a way in which it's possible to move forward without a dialogue that also involves people who do experience everyday racism and for them to find in, in, their, sort of, in their hearts the will to try and understand the people who are saying the wrong thing, asking the wrong thing, not understanding and seeing maybe if there is a common ground uh, and if there is a way to find common understanding and to kind of develop coexistence and co-belonging together uh, despite those experiences. But that is a big ask to to ask of people. And maybe it's not legitimate. I'm not even sure. But that's kind of where I'm landed so far in this debate. I think this is really interesting because uh, we were just discussing before we started recording that a lot of the words that we use, the terms we use um, when we're talking about these things internationally uh, are perceived as coming from, for example, the US, where discussions about race are are much more, I think, open and common, um, even if there is still a lot of polarization. But there is actually a Norwegian word that that really applies here, which is racisme, uh, so literally everyday racism. And it I guess you could maybe translate it as microaggressions. Uh, we would probably call it in the U.S. where I'm from. But I think that really applies because it's like you're saying, um, the, it's not so much about the intention. And I think intention is something that a lot of people in the U.S. have begun to understand that they have to let go of. As you're saying, you know, your intention might be good. But if the result is is discriminatory, even if that was not your intention, um, it's still very harmful. But it's funny because I, I do think that this this Vardogsrasisme could be a really useful way to frame it uh, in this Norwegian context. So moving on to your research, um, you talk about arenas, this idea that there are going to be these spaces where we can actually meet each other and hopefully with, with open, open minds and, and open hearts in a way. But kind of going back to that topic of uh, responsibility, I guess, who should be making, creating these arenas? What do they even look like? 
and how how are they going to be created and but really who's the onus on it's like you're saying i mean is it fair to ask people of color to to do that after kind of everything else that they've already been through um what do you envision that that being like i think first of all i want to say that um an interesting reflection i've had sort of uh, moving into these topics uh, has been that you know, I've never actually had a research project which has been about, you know, experiences of racism or everyday racism. So working with migration issues broadly, I've uh, basically been talking to people who have migrant background, uh, many of them migrants themselves, but also um, children of migrants either born in, in Norway or also children of migrants who came to Norway as, as a child but have grown up uh, in the Norwegian context. And so despite sort of never really going out there to try and learn about experiment. Ex- experiences of discrimination or everyday racism uh, in so many interviews that has been something which has come up uh, and I think one of the reasons why I do think that it is possible to move ahead uh, you know one of it is just personally I'm, I'm an optimist so I think you know things generally uh, have to work out uh, but it's also because of these experiences that I've had with interviewing people of migrant background and um Usually, you know, these experiences of everyday racism or discrimination have come up in conversations about their lives in Norway, uh, and they've come up in the context where that's not the only experience, right? So even when people have told me about sort of overtly racist experiences, which which do occur, uh, and I think you know many many people of migrant background in Norway, and actually not pe- not only people of color, but people who kind of audibly are different as well, uh, have these experiences of othering, say, in the Norwegian society. Uh, but most of the experiences are much more minor, right? And then again, many, many of the experiences they have in their everyday lives are not about that at all. They're about the neighbors who, you know, you're just friends with, or you have kids in the same kindergarten or school, or you play football together, or you're in the same gym, or it's the, you know, it's the man at the counter in the shop that you just smile to, who does or does not have a migrant background, you don't even know maybe. Uh, and that sort of everyday life is mainly not about these experiences, and so I don't have any quantitative research about it as such in terms of kind of measuring the, you know, the minutes in the day and how many minutes in the day every person feels that they're being ex- discriminated against or not, right? I don't think we even have that kind of research. Uh, but I do think it's quite subjective how people experience whether this is a big thing in their lives or not. And I think it's true that if you have a really, really bad experience, that's going to be quite formative. But of course, when that happens and how, it's going to be quite formative as well. Uh, and so then coming to the arenas, as you were, you were asking about, I think these sort of insights are important because it depends where and when and in which type of arena maybe you have good or bad experiences of different kinds. Um, and I think it also depends on what happens next. So there's quite a lot of research on, on you know, encounters between people in, in the context of, of migration and of diversity and also of discrimination, of trying to understand what is happening exactly as we were speaking about, not just about the intentions, but about what actually happens. Uh, and there's, you know, there's interesting research which sort of shows that, you know, despite people's, you know, in political inclinations or whether they may be sort of register in surveys that they have very liberal, open-minded values or not, how people react in everyday life is dependent on like a whole host of factors and not just their sort of stated values and beliefs uh, if they have to, time to think about it, right? But I think the what we know for, actually from some of the research that we have done at Prio in terms of which arenas are important to people or how they matter is that the experiences of discrimination based on what people perceive to be uh, discrimination on on the account of migrant background or of how they look, so of of race and ethnicity and things like that, um, they vary so much. 
And actually, some of the places where people experience that there is more race, uh, more discrimination uh, is on public transport or on the streets, uh, and maybe actually less than in encounters with the police in the Norwegian context. So I think the sort of question of arenas is something that, you know, I think there needs to be much more research on to sort of understand in terms of actually understanding that it is quite different. Uh, so the workplace has been the focus of a lot of attention and discrimination research. And I think that's important, obviously, but it's also not the only arena. Um, and then we know that there's a lot of issues, say, uh, in terms of, of how people trust public institutions, but public institutions are also very different. So the health sector is very different from the education sector, for instance. So I think there needs to be more work on that as well. Uh, but in terms of arenas that could be sort of uh, spaces of, of possi possibility in, in this context, um, I do think that a key factor uh, is that they have to be sort of uh, co-produced or co-owned in some sense between the people who are actually in them. So they have to kind of be uh, arenas that are open to different people uh, without being entirely sort of asymmetrical or skewed at the point of departure. So in my research, um, we've sort of played around with this in terms of the school context. Uh, as a context where, of course, it's a, it's a nation state uh, framed institution. We all know that. But leaving that aside, uh, in Norway, the public school system is for all. Uh, so it's in that sense an equal space in that every child actually is allowed to go to school, which is you know, obviously a huge, a huge and great thing that we should appreciate. And in that context, at least in the way that the curriculum is, is formed and how teachers are trained, so how it should be, doesn't mean that that's always how it is experienced in practice. But how it should be uh, is a space where it actually is possible to have these kind of a, a encounters where you might actually be able to speak to each other and listen and learn from each other. And we had uh, we had focus groups with young people in schools. And, and yes, there were a lot of stumbling blocks. And yes, it doesn't automatically become symmetrical. And yes, there are many challenges. But it is actually possible to put young people that are in the same class at school in the same room. Uh, and it is possible to facilitate them having a conversation where they do listen to each other. Uh, and I think just trying to facilitate those possibilities in itself is a good starting point, because that is not what you see on social media in the commentary fields. That is not what you get on the TV debates on these issues at all. They're all about polarizing and they're all about kind of the most heated arguments and the most kind of um, sort of sharp phrased versions of saying things that are maybe not intended to hurt, but probably still do. And that is not uh, an arena, I think, where, where you're able to kind of encourage people to try and listen and understand. I think it has to be uh, a, an arena or a space that is, is experienced as safe, and also safe in the sense that it requires an openness to share vulnerabilities, both on the, on the side of someone who actually has experienced everyday racism, to be open about the fact that this actually is something which happens, and it actually affects me. Very often, I think people have a uh, huge capacity for defense mechanisms and they manage to kind of survive and, and cope by focusing on, on you know, the good sides, by having solidarity with others who also experience these things uh, and by kind of maybe not um, spending too much time necessarily trying to sort of dig deeper into them always, right? But I think if you then want to open up and actually have honest conversations about things, there has to be an openness and a safety around that. But also uh, on the other side, right? So people who maybe are without wanting to contributing to a context where others are feeling discriminated against. And I think for you know white people in Norway to be in a space where they, they sort of want to engage in a conversation where it's possible to say something about intent and about you know views on equality and dignity that people very often have, which are very sort of common and egalitarian, 
And at the same time, to have that reflection space to actually say, well, actually, yes, maybe some of the things that I said or did or say or do can amount to others feeling discriminated against. And having that reflection space to realize that and to try and find together how it's possible to proceed from that. I think those arenas need to be created and facilitated. And I think the schools are certainly one one sort of institution where publicly it's possible to kind of say that we want to do that and actually to invest resources in doing that. To be honest, in terms of other arenas, I think it is down to you know you and me and just everyone to see you know is it possible to create those kinds of arenas in friend groups you know in the neighborhood uh, and it might happen without planning and sometimes it might be something which is possible to actually plan for and, and accommodate for. But I think it's certainly an area that needs more exploring as well. Yeah, and I think also it's so important that it's opt in and I, I know that you've kind of already addressed this but that everyone has to have uh everyone present has to have that openness that they actually want to be there um because otherwise unfortunately it's not going to work but that's that's a pretty big ask as well um both for people who might be perpetuating uh this kind of discriminatory cycle but also people experiencing it obviously um who who don't want to be re-traumatized and exposed to similar situations um, but thank you for the, for the point as well, that it's kind of up to everyone. And I, I think that's completely clearly true. I mean, anybody who's hearing this as well can, you can do something right now and, and reflect. It's really surprisingly that simple. It's complicated and it's simple. <laughs> um, so I also am kind of wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about, um, the research in that. I, I would just love to hear a little more about the experiences of the the people that you've actually re- researched with and, and talked to and heard from, um, because we've touched on it a little bit. Um, but I just think it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit more about what their experiences have been. And again, of course, this is in the Norwegian context, so um, we can't extrapolate too much, obviously, but, but I do think that that'd be great to hear about. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of the... Um... The interviews that I've done with people with a migrant background have been with people from a background from Pakistan, because that's one of the one of the areas of the world that I've been doing doing research on. Um, and so there's kind of the double issue in a sense of having a Muslim background or what people would ascribe to be a Muslim background, whereas you know, in in actual fact, people might feel that that identity is more or less appropriate for them. Uh, but also being a visible minority in the Norwegian context. Um, and I think, you know, some of the experiences that I've heard people share are are very sort of um, strong experiences in the sense of, of you know, basically uh, being uh, vocally <laughs> abused with kind of people shouting racist statements at them. So there's sort of, you know, pretty typical, unfortunately, statements, you know, go back to where you came from and, and Paki and, and those kinds of, of things as well. Uh, and also some experiences that have been even more overt in the sense that, you know, yeah, people talk about your skin color and how you look and, and overtly discriminate you uh, on that basis as well. Um, but like I said, I think uh, in what's been really characteristic in, in most of those interviews, which, you know, have not, uh, from the point of departure, been about experiences of racism, but about things like, you know, remittances or transnational ties or experiences in the Norwegian society that have to do with kind of whether you think you'll stay in Norway or maybe return or, yeah, so kind of from the point of departure actually about something else, but where your life and your experiences in Norway sort of come into it really strongly. Uh, and where, you know, people tend to uh, really also say a lot about the experiences that have been positive and good, 
and also about friendships that they have with people who have a Norwegian background or other migrant backgrounds and are kind of mixing uh, as an important part of their um, life worlds as well. Uh, and it's something which which gives them hope. And I think um, it's it's a difficult topic for, for many people to speak about. At the same time, it's a very sort of natural natural thing to, to also share about when you talk about your experiences. Uh, and I think uh, for especially people that I've interviewed who are descendants of migrants who are either born in, in Norway or, or, or maybe who came to Norway as, as young children, but who sort of feel very Norwegian and who feel very settled uh, in Norway and kind of see their futures mainly in the Norwegian context. Uh, it's it's more about how are we going to make it work in a sense. So it's kind of it's seen as you know it's seen as a problem and an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and there's kind of I guess varying opinion as to whether discrimination is getting worse or not uh, in terms of people's experiences of it. But at the, at the same time, I think there's a very clear sense that you know that there is no option other than to try and work towards a society where there is less discrimination, and people have a perspective of that in terms of you know my children should not be experiencing this or you know, these kinds of things. I think there it is. You know, it's it is a dilemma that we know that the children of migrants in general do feel more discriminated against than the migrant generation, and I think it's it's still kind of a an, a research puzzle in a way. What factor in that does it play that migrants, to start with, don't come from this country? They come from somewhere else and they settle. And that means that you have a different approach to how you're being treated in society, for better or worse. But that's kind of humanly just how it is. You learn the language as an adult, etc. Right. So you have your identity from, from another country or several other countries and you come to this country. And that's very different if you're growing up or have been born and then are growing up in a particular society. And that's your home society. And then any kind of... Uh, experience of being alienated from that or not having the right to just fully and naturally and legitimately belong in that society, that is just so much more of a big thing for obvious reasons, right? So I think the research puzzle is how much does this explain the difference and how much is down to kind of change over time? So are we actually seeing more or less discrimination against different groups? And and, and I think this is uh, super challenging to figure out. And I think also in terms of the sort of arenas that we were speaking about, in many arenas, such as public spaces, if you just go with visible difference, you have no idea whether people have, you know, a grandparent who migrated from Pakistan and their parents even are born in this country and they are kind of, you know, the grandchild of a migrant and hence that identity is not very strong, rather unsurprisingly, or whether this is someone who arrived two years ago. And so I think in terms of arenas there, the sort of visible difference thing becomes really important to be aware of because you really have no idea. And there we know that demographically, the Norwegian society has diversified in the last three, four, five decades relatively rapidly uh, to, you know, from the point where it was rather unusual that you had people of color on the street to the point now in a place like Oslo, where this is very, very common and in most workplaces and schools, uh, et cetera, as well. So I think, you know, the experiences from my interviews in a way are very diverse, partly because the the questions that I was asking were not about this. So I think that is an advantage in the sense that I wasn't kind of looking for anything specific, uh, but it also means that it's not entirely systematic, right? So it's, it's kind of what people chose to say because it was relevant to the story of their life or of their everyday experience, I think. And then some final aspect that I want to mention in terms of the research is another project that I did that was on um, on citizenship specifically. And what was interesting there is that we, we actually interviewed people there who were both um, people who were Norwegian citizens and had been from birth, people who had naturalized to become Norwegian citizens, people who were dual citizens and people who did not have Norwegian citizenship. 
And across these categories, we had people who, uh, you know, defined themselves as Norwegian or not, you know, in very different kinds of ways. Uh, and we had people who had migrant backgrounds and children of migrants also within that group. And what was interesting was that it was not very predictable how people would feel in terms of whether or not they uh, had, you know, were accepted as naturally belonging. So we had people who, you know, were the children of migrants and were sort of visibly different, who felt that this was entirely possible, uh, and who maybe had some experiences of, of racism or discrimination, but who didn't really put much sort of weight on those, and who felt, you know, illegally and in all kinds of ways, it's it's all good in a sense. And then we had others who really did not feel like that at all, and who felt discrimination was a huge issue. So I'm not just saying it's sort of, you know, it's down to personality or, you know, people should just get a grip and then it's fine. Not at all. But I am saying that the experiences are actually quite varied. And I think coming back to what we were opening with, that is really important to also recognize because it's not like people who, you know, share the same skin color will have the same experience necessarily. We know it's also gender. There are class and sort of socioeconomic issues that have to do with this. Certainly education and job super important in how you experience your position in a society. Uh, and so I think giving space to that sort of not only nuance, but actually also different different experiences that people have that cut across is super important. I think one of the risks with this sort of very polarized debate that sort of forces us into binaries uh, is exactly that. It forces us into binaries and the world is not divided into two. So closing, uh, I just want to zoom out a little bit and put this into really into the international context, which we've kind of alluded to already um, with me referencing, of course, the U.S. Um, But I think people are often asking this question of, is this even relevant to us? And whether that's Norway or or other countries that are also having similar debates right now, um, is structural racism, can we import that term to Norway? Does it work in this context? Um, I mean, I'm certainly of the view that yes, it, it does. Um, and I think in a way we can, we can talk about individuals, but individuals do make up structures as well. And I'm white too, so I can't talk from a personal experience of racism, but I think, for example, with gender discrimination, I mean, it's similar in Norway that there are plenty of laws, as you say, and structural systemic attempts to, to mitigate gender discrimination, but I still experience that and it's certainly much, much, much better than many other countries, but I'm sure women in Norway, many women in Norway would relate to that experience. And I think uh, it's important to to recognize that it's individuals make up structures. Um, that's my point of view though. So um, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about this international context of this entire conversation, kind of a big ask, I know. <laughs> it is. Thanks. But I think it's, it's an important point. Um Yes, I think it's it's a really good point that you're making in terms of the fact that, you know, structures, systems, they're not kind of just abstract things up there. Uh, they are, in a way, us, right? So sort of the structures and systems and institutions we have in a society are, you know, not separate from that society. Uh, and in terms of the institutions, we know that they are made up of people who actually work there. And I think actually in that context, it is useful to also think a little bit um, in the same way as we would do with individuals, perhaps in terms of being able to separate out a little bit what the intention is and what the actual effect is. Uh, and to me, at least, that is a little bit of the, the challenge in the Norwegian context and having this conversation. But I think some of the people who are sort of against the idea of structural racism in Norway as, as a real thing that we should be debating to the extent that those people really, uh, really think so, it's because there's an assumption that it's an intended effect. 
Uh, and, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I actually don't think it's an intended effect. And I know people would, you know, there are people who disagree with me in, in that. But I think the Norwegian legislation on anti-discrimination is is not bad. I'm sure there are improvements. And I'm, I know there are improvements that are possible to do in terms of how it's actually managed and what actually happens in practice if you report discrimination at a police station. So on, on all of those things, certainly there's huge room for improvement. But in terms of the frameworks that the institutions have of what they intend to do, uh, I'm, you know, I would say that, yes, there we do have a problem in sort of actually showing that the intention definitely is to be racist. I think that would be a very hard thing to prove. And I think in the Norwegian context, there's been a lot of learning from the experiences with the Sami population where, you know, those questions were very pertinent. And I think the answer there would be yes, actually, there were structural problems, right? And I think the, these have to an extent been rectified. And, and there's been a lot of learning from that, which hopefully can also then feed into further work in the broader field of, of racism, discrimination work uh, as well. And I know that that's already happening to an extent. But I think um, in terms of the international uh, linkages, you know, in in research, we'd probably think that, you know, you you don't have concepts that only work in one context. So maybe you do have some concepts that only work in one context. But in general, to have a good concept, uh, probably that should be a concept which can be applicable to, you know, dynamics, processes, you know, things that happen, maybe not universally, but in many different societies, if it's processes or dynamics that are, that involve human beings, then, you know, in, in principle, why should they not be relevant to, you know, human beings in another context? And then we might have different concepts that are complementary or overlapping. And we know that this is the case in terms of how we discuss different things that have to do with, with social groups and between of boundaries between social groups, right? So we know that, you know, whether we speak about, you know, nation or ethnicity or race for these types of things, that might be applicable in some contexts, whereas in other contexts, maybe it makes more sense to also speak about cost and then maybe you have to include religion or maybe it's about economy or so, sort of social groupings otherwise in other contexts you might want to also talk about tribes perhaps uh, but essentially these this is all about social groups and about kind of boundary mechanisms that social groups have so in that sense i think it's useful to sort of not just sort of say that you know structural racism is something that refers to somewhere else it's not for us and we can just you know breathe on and we don't have to think about it but maybe to think about what is it about that concept that makes us maybe question it or embrace it i think both of those reactions if they're too full on and uncritical are you know worth questioning because <laughs> so i think it's worth to sort of figure out you know so if it is a concept we should be using in norway why and in which kinds of ways and where is it relevant and how should we be using it right and where does it come from? So if it is a concept that we are taking, say, from the US, and we know that that is a very particular history, you know, which caveats are there and how does it actually apply in the Norwegian context uh, or not? I think you're right that this sort of the debates here are really international. And we saw that also with the sort of Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. And also we're seeing that still in 2021, I think, that these things sort of um, spread around and has to do with social media and the Internet more generally. I do, ha I do think it also has to do fundamentally with the fact that discrimination and racism are very human. Uh, and they are to do with, you know, on the one hand, in the European context, obviously also with white privilege. But globally, it has to do with privilege. And I think that's also an interesting way of sort of trying to uh, maybe diffuse some of the sort of very heated nature of these debates is to sort of say, well, yes, in this context, it has to do with whiteness, certainly. And that is sort of historically... Uh, not determined, but, but there's a history to that. Uh, but in many other con contexts, we could speak about colorism, or we could speak about you know racism in, in the context of South Asia, which would look completely different. But the mechanisms of someone having you know more power, more privilege, more status, 
doing something with that, again, whether it's intentional or not, open question, uh, but that the, those mechanisms are there at play, I think that is a pretty sort of global thing. And in that sense, it's very good that these things are now international. And I think that it's it's useful if it's possible to have conversations about how we can make concepts travel or not and how they're useful in different contexts and how we can learn from each other. I think where it becomes dangerous is if we just sort of import the polarized debates and uh, sort of stop short of going forward from there. I think there's a lot we can learn from from different contexts if we actually want to sort of improve the situation and eliminate racism, which I think should be the ultimate goal, right? And I think that's something which human societies have not succeeded with yet. Uh, There's still quite far to go there. Uh, But if you can use that kind of international sharing to that end, then I think it's really useful to the extent that it just contributes to sort of fuel heated debates, which I think, you know, it does also do that. Uh, I'm not sure how productive that aspect of it is. Thank you so much, Marta, for unpacking this very complicated topic. And um, we'll also add some links to your op-eds in the description of the podcast so that people can read more. And of course, I would encourage them to also check out um, the, the research that you did, and there will be some links to that as well. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trighauger. Music by Martin Venable.